On this special episode of Everywhere Radio, we're talking to my colleague Dee Davis, president of the Center for Rural Strategies, right on the heels of the midterm elections. The results are still rolling in as we speak, but there are some things we know for sure, and I wanted to ask Dee to name some of those, especially what we know from rural battleground states, and get his analysis on rural voters and rural futures in general. Dee follows national and state politics almost as closely as he does Kentucky basketball, which means he takes it seriously. You can find out more about Dee and our organization, the Center for Rural Strategies at ruralassembly.org. How's it going, Dee? It's good. I'm, I'm glad that you gave me that introduction because for uh, weeks I've been really paying attention to this election and then in the last few days, I just shut it down. I couldn't watch anymore. Uh, I was just getting confused. And then last night, uh, as the uh, results started pouring in, I just put on the recording of the last Kentucky basketball game. And I watched that instead. And about about 10 o'clock, I decided I got to find out what's going on. And so uh, I flipped over. But I do think in some ways, um, I feel like a coach. I know what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do, and I don't understand why uh, the professionals don't follow my whims. But uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, so, I'm glad you was, went back to the uh, to the election results because otherwise I would have been telling you what happened last night, <laughs> or I would just be making it up, which you, I might be anyway. <laughs> uh, so it was a it was a surprise election. And, and, you know, um, there are always surprises in elections and, and, you know, and people like to be judged against uh, expectations. So you have expectations that comes from that come from historical precedent. And, uh, you know, for example, when Obama came in with two houses behind him in 2008, he had. He he rode a blue wave and then lost historic amounts two years later in the midterm, 63 votes. I, th- I think he, I mean, he, the House flipped over and, and the Republicans had a huge lead. Um, then um, Trump uh, lost um, about 40 seats, I think, uh, in after his big win in 16. And so there was a lot of anticipation that Biden was going to take a shellacking, that the House was going to go 40, 50, 60 votes uh, to the Republicans. And that this, and in the last minute, the last um, projections that the Senate would, would flip to the Republicans by as many as three none of that quite happened according to script. Um, But things aren't uh, exactly clear in the fog of war right now. One of the things I I did in trying to avoid the run-up to the election, I turned on a movie I I saw. I watched a a kind of modern-day adaptation of Shakespeare's Cymbeline, and there's a character who says the event has not named a winner yet. And I think this is where we are, that the, the event is not named the winner yet, but we're beginning to see some things. And, and some of the things that we see 
are slightly uh, beyond precedent. And that is um, how active the women's vote seems to have been. And the greatest of all unicorns for people who uh, look at elections is youth vote. It's always, you know, it's always going to flip elections, but it never does. But it may very well have been so intense, not in numbers, but in commitment, that we saw in lots of places where Republicans were strong that um, the force of women upset with uh, the Dobbs decision or Roe reversal Roe v. Wade, that all of a sudden we saw a different kind of participation, even in states like Kentucky, where um, Rand Paul won going away as a Republican Senate candidate, uh, and the the veto-proof Republican House even became more veto-proof. We saw um, a um, a ballot initiative uh, for constitutional amendment move to the pro-abortion side. That that is uh, that there was no constitutional or a failure of a constitutional amendment to um, to deny abortions in all cases. So. That's kind of where we are right now. There were some um, 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 it, it appears that uh, the Republicans are going to have a slight uh, majority in the House and that McCarthy will start out as the speaker and this uh, if this goes according to projections right now, a lot of that'll be because of a court case in New York where the courts decided how to reapportion congressional districts, whereas in a lot of other states, we saw gerrymandering from the parties in power. And so that that may have um, given Republicans a slight advantage there. We're still waiting and we'll be for days waiting for the uh, California votes to be counted and some votes out west in Arizona and Nevada. Mm-hmm. And in Georgia, too, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think that the Secretary of State in Georgia has indicated that he is preparing for a runoff election. So that means that they do not see that Warnock will get to 50%. So in a lot of Southern states, you have this, um, this rule about runoffs. And part of that was to make sure that aberrant or uh, uh, um, candidates of a different color weren't going to uh, get a, a, plurality, but not a majority of the vote and take office. So the idea being that um, that certainly when one party rule in a lot of these states that um, there was a feeling that if 
we could keep this rule about of 50% plus one, that that would uh, keep the status quo. And, and so in, in Georgia, we're going to have to see a runoff more than likely. Hmm. So you've offered us a real kind of a, a bigger picture overview of what happened last night, even, even as you watched some basketball, some old basketball and, uh, <laughs> and a movie. Um, and I wonder, I'm curious if, uh, if that, if that big takeaway, if you can whittle it down to the role that rural voters were playing um, last night. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, we, we track rural voters pretty closely and it's not always the first data that you see so and oftentimes when you watch the the networks explain what's happening they'll point to clear suburbs and and think that they're rural voters or they'll indicate that they're rural voters so you, so you get mixed up a little bit but mm-hmm. in we did some polling um just um a um, couple of weeks out, looking at rural voters in battleground states, that is swing states, those states where um, it could go either way. And we saw some pretty startling data. And someone who's looked at a lot of rural voter polling over the years, um, I was surprised. And, And what we saw was that rural voters are 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 more and more conservative uh indicating that their preference is republican then that's not a real surprise but about half the voters were there about 25% were democrats and about 25% were non-affiliated or independent but um what was amazing in this Footy, I mean, in this uh, in this data was just how pessimistic rural voters found themselves at this point in American history. Always before you would see, even in in times of great distress or despair, rural voters would have an optimistic view of the future, or they would say. I'm going to be okay. I just worry about my kids. But what we're seeing here is um, you had about 25% of the rural population say that the economy was working well or very well for them. Um, and um, in that's that's pretty low. And then in the next 12 months, do you think your personal situation is going to get better or worse? We have 51% think it's going to get worse and only 15% think it's going to get better. And and then I, I think for me, what really shook me is in general, do you think the next generation will be better off, worse off, or about the same as people in your generation? Only 5% of rural voters in these swing states said, that things were going to be better off. Now that is, wow, I wouldn't wow. say, I wouldn't say it's not American, but I've looked at a lot of polls, and we always have this kind of general optimism that 
thrives even in hard times and this kind of thinking that what's around the corner has got to be better and that's why we go to school and that's why we work so hard because it's going to be better off and if it's not going to be better off for me it's going to be better off for my kid and so this is vanishing here maybe it's just one moment one snapshot but it was some cause for concern and then if you take that the next step what our poll showed was that among rural voters, there was this real sense of economic populism, not kind of, uh, you know, the, the Donald Trump populism of throwing journalists in jail, but more the kind of populism of um, dislike of corporations. You know, they probably would throw the CEOs in jail if they had a chance, feeling like everything is rigged against them in the economic system. This is, again, a departure from what we've seen in the past. You don't want to make too much out of one snapshot. But because it was so apparent, uh, I think um, we should look into it deeper um, and uh, really try to find out What's going on in uh, rural households? Mm -hmm. And how is, I mean, how is that sense of, um, I don't know if despair is the right word, but, you know, 5% of folks feeling like it's not going to get better, that their children will not do better um, in the coming years than they are. How do you correlate that to a vote um, for the GOP versus the Democratic Party or, you know, how do people respond um, to this worry and anxiety that they have? So so uh, Mark Twain said that people uh, complained that he had become a pessimist in his old age. And he said he was not a pessimist. He was just an optimist who hadn't arrived. I think in some <laughs> ways we're seeing a lot of optimism that hasn't arrived. And um, what what I would say that means is that people who are unhappy with the way things are are usually voters in play. That m- means the message or the candidates that would capture their imagination may not be there at this moment, but they have no stake in the status quo. They have no stake in continuation, but they don't feel aligned with candidates that they're seeing. And I think what we know is often true with rural voters is that on issues they can look like they're not just moderate, but progressive voters when it comes down to uh, economic issues. But culturally, they have a hard time with Democratic candidates and campaigns that emphasize... um, Um, issues like 
race, abortion, some other sets of uh, topics that really seem to be driven by elites or intelligentsia and and people in rural areas feel looked down upon. Of course, in America, everybody feels looked down upon by somebody. Even billionaires complain that they are disliked. But uh, I think in rural America, you're seeing a lot of people who just can't find a way to vote for candidates who are... um, um, I would say engaged in a, an intellectual conversation and a conversation of abstractions when, that have that seem distant from uh, the rural experience. We'll be right back after this from the Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Anya Slepian with the Daily Yonder. Check out the Yonder Report a weekly podcast rounding out the latest rural news. Produced by The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Everywhere Radio. Well, we've talked about how uh, rural voters make up about a fifth of the electorate, and that's not a whole lot. So why why a hyper-focus is important on, on rural voters? Why would Why do we need to be paying attention? To the movement of these numbers. So I, I don't know what the number of of African American voters are fourteen percent, something like that. You know, you you know what the number of Latino voters is? Is it eighteen? It's hard to determine because because Latino voters or Hispanic voters are bifurcated in how they name their race, but in reality. In a closely divided nation, every group that you can reach out to who has has an identity that you can reach for, then that, that group, that cultural group, has a lot of power, has a lot of clout, and, and truly, um, there's a lot of of differences in rural. There's a lot of diversity, but there's a kind of uh, cultural uh, identity or um, homogeneousness that that you, we can we can see in some ways, and um, and it's used to distance. Um, the community from other communities. I, I, I was just in Memphis and I took a trip to the uh, Bass Pro Shop, which is in this great old basketball pyramid. It's it's amazing. It's, it's uh, like, I'm sure it's bigger than the pyramids in Gaza. And, and so, uh, and you go in there and they're like, they're ponds with 250, 300, pound gars and there are alligators behind glass and there's all this this uh uh and you know they're bass pools there's all these uh, live animals around there's um 
there's a shooting range where you can go <laughs> shoot at targets in the in the store. There there are a lot of mugs that say "Don't tread on me." And I went up to the top to look out around, look at the Mississippi River, and look around. And and uh, and then <laughs> and then I came back down, and as soon as the the elevator door uh, opened, there were um, six. Uh, Muslim women in traditional uh, dress, long dress, hajib, and as like, I think this cultural battle is not what we always think it is. I think that there is a real appeal to this kind of um, uh, pickup truck driving. Uh, beer drinking, uh, Dolly Parton, Toby Keith world of uh, of rural people that um, we don't think of as a political force, but in some ways, cultural forces are more determinative, I think, than a voting issue. Mm. And you know, and I'm still con- I'm I'm from the the South, and you're describing my backyard, um, that Bass Pro Shop, and the the pluralistic and multicultural experience that you can still have, but I'm still confounded that, you know, rural identity can sometimes be wrapped up in Dolly Parton. And at the same time, the day-to-day aspects of rural life can feel really difficult to, you know, to, to, uh, to get everything you need at the grocery store, to have a, a good paying, decent job that offers dignity and a living wage to achieve childcare like just the day-to-day fabric of our lives um, and how that plays out in the voting booth. Is it Dolly Parton we're, we're holding on to one day or is it, you know, just the day-to-day um, and how that all plays out. So I'm just, I'm always a little confounded. And I think that the feeling that, um, that people in rural communities have a sense of being part of the help and not part of the problem, not being the backwardness, mm-hmm. but being the people who want to show up for you. If you're in a flood, they're the people who want to take their boat and come and help you. And the, this, their own cultural sense of being a force that lifts the country, not an, not an embarrassment to the country. I think it's within that, cultural framework, you know, of people who are more moderate, who don't see themselves as um, uh, uh, bigoted, don't see themselves as mean. It's within that framework that um, Democrats used to thrive, right? Bill Clinton won, rural voters twice. But since that time, there was a real decision made to to court college-educated voters to really focus on urban. There was a sense by the Democratic Party that demographics is destiny. And so there was a real move away. And, it's, and of all the races for the Democrats, perhaps the most interesting may have been the Pennsylvania Senate race, where John Fetterman... Um, 
former mayor of a little beat up town called Braddock. And I know I went to school at Pitt and I used to go to a bar called Chiotas there uh, in Braddock, mm -hmm. right, right at the site of the, uh, the Homestead Massacre. And, and, um, and, and his candidacy was one where he said he was going to go to every county and pay attention to every vote. And so here's a candidate who had a, seems like a pretty a pretty big stroke. I, I don't know what's a massive mm -hmm. stroke, but I was a, he had a stroke right after his primary. Um, and they ran a candidacy where <laughs> the dealing with the stroke victim, they still went county by county, uh, as he was getting healthy, he had a, a, a debate where he did um, uh, phenomenally poorly against uh, the uh, television uh, uh, celebrity uh, Mehmet Oz, and and then he still wins it going away. Of course, part of that was because uh, the um Shapiro the gubernatorial candidate was a strong candidate and and so that opened that up but in some ways that was considered a very vulnerable uh seat for the Democrats and what he did what Fetterman did was he went into each of these counties and even in these red counties in Pennsylvania, it's usually, you know, they say Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between. He went into these red <laughs> counties and he cut the margins that Biden lost by. And that seems to have given him a cushion for a, a decent win uh, as, as the votes are still being tabulated. Hmm. Um, are there any other states or races that you were observing last night that's um, that merits some discussion here? Well, I think um, for, for people who live in Appalachia, everybody's kind of had an eye on the Ohio Senate race because of J.D. Vance, mm -hmm. who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, uh, the, and about, which was really about, uh, his family from Breath County, Kentucky, and then moving to Cincinnati and, and uh, his view, which was a very dystopic view of Appalachian culture and history and, and uh, kind of how you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and um, get through addiction and it's all hard work. Um, there was a, there's been a lot of anger because he never really spent any time. I think I probably have spent more nights in Breathitt County than he ever did. But, but the reality is that this phenomenon, this, his view of his dystopic rural America kind of, um, was the propulsion that made him a star. He was, um, Ivy League educated. He was um, uh, a Silicon Valley investor. And then um, we went to back to the Cincinnati suburbs where 
he grew up and um, and ran for office in a very um, more and more a, a red state. And he kind of won by the margins that Trump won by approximately the same margins. So Trump had a bad night, uh, election night, mostly it looks like his candidates, uh, the ones who denied the 2020 election loss, there's still a couple of those to be determined. But but in reality, uh, J.D. Vance um, was, was a target uh, he ran against a Democratic populist in Tim Ryan and won. And so what he'll, what his legacy is, how he serves in the Senate, I think is going to be um, uh, a, a kind of a, a focal point for what the rural story is as it plays out in national politics. And I think there are a lot of rural um, everywhere radio listeners who are sitting this, with this morning um, and maybe the mornings after as more results come in with this question of, you know, now what? Um, and what is the rural story that we're going to see or want to see play out in the next couple of years um, or in the, the upcoming uh, 2024 elections? What What sort of Thoughts, reflections do you have on the rural story coming up? What's next? What we're seeing now is we've known in long-term trends that in an economic system dominated by globalization, right, that there's going to be a real push to make markets more efficient and to have competition not just regionally or nationally but globally. And so what that means to traditional communities like mine or like other rural communities dominated by mining, farming, timbering, um, or even, you know, light manufacturing down the road, is that more competition, more market efficiency really pushes against um, traditional employment. And it makes... uh, It makes it harder to keep people at work in those jobs. Then, it's not exactly a perfect storm, but but we've, with COVID, we saw this great decline in retail in rural areas. So many businesses shut. And so that one sector that was kind of, holding on lost out as people moved to online purchases more and more. And so now you've got healthcare kind of propping up a lot of rural communities, uh, looking after each other, being what keeps these communities between the ditches and um, kind of, um, you know, outsourcing or, or distance uh, employment where people are working um, over the internet. And, and so, so there's some huge pressures on rural communities, but there's some opportunities. And the thing is you can, 
you can fall to despair or you can figure out the ways to go forward. The other thing in a mobile country like ours with so much wealth is if you make your community a good place to live, if you have the bandwidth to be able to do distance working, and if you have the tenets of decency and inclusion, there's some real possibilities for small towns that people want to live in. Um, it's not going to be easy. doesn't mean that every um, rural community up the hall is going to thrive, but it does at least open a window for things getting better. Um, they're not going to need a lot of people to mine coal, and they're not going to need a lot of people to farm, and they're not going to need a lot of people to cut timber in the same way that we have in rural communities uh, before. So we've got to we've got to find a new uh, path forward, and it's not impossible. It's it's right there in front of us, but. Um, uh, nobody's really asking politicians uh, to help with that model. More and more, the request is, can you intervene? Can you bring back what we lost? And um, that debate's not really serving people other than maybe the politicians who promise it but don't deliver. Well, thank you, Dee, for coming on to this morning and um giving us some of these reflections. I wonder, I'm curious for the next couple of days, what should people be on the lookout for? What are the one or two things we need to be looking for? Yeah. Uh, as I said, the event has not yet named the winner. I, I think that um, there's always a lot of noise, right? It's always fog of war. People who are sure what it means will be saying what it means. And, and uh, a lot of people with agendas will be telling you what this election meant in some ways, just like I just did. But I think the reality is uh, that that data will not be available for months. We'll be sorting through this. You know, we'll be, you know, after the 2020 election, the, the Rio Grande Valley went kind of hard to the right. And so it, the indicators with that, that's over. Texas is going to be red. Latino voters are going Republican. This time the valley went back to the Democrats. Uh, and... And so, you know, it, it's just going to take some time. And I think the most important thing is not to uh, be impatient, that um, the mud will settle and then we'll know what's what, but it'll take a while. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again, Dee. We'll check in with you, I'm sure, um, down the road. You have well, a good rest of your day. Well, it's nice to uh, see you. Likewise, always. If you enjoyed Everywhere Radio, we'd love for you to consider subscribing to the General Rural Assembly newsletter. 
That's where we promote new offerings from the Assembly and we amplify the good work of our many partners across the country. We've also launched a new policy advocacy newsletter that comes to inboxes on Mondays to help you start each week with a quick take on the top issues that we're tracking across the nation. Everything from broadband policy to rural vaccinations. Just head over to ruralassembly.org to sign up. If you're a true fan of Everywhere Radio, please let us know by rating us wherever you get your podcast. If this isn't your cup of tea, that's no biggie. It's fine. And we'd like to thank our media partner, The Daily Yonder. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly. Our senior producer is Joel Cohen. Associate producers are Teresa Collins and Xander Brown. And our assistant producer is Anya Slepian. And we're grateful for the love and support from the whole team at Center for Rural Strategies. Love you mean it. You can be anywhere, we'll be everywhere. <laughs>